If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 93. I was again struck by the providence of God. I remember a few months ago, I came to fill in, and my text was uh, Hebrews 1, and Mark opened by reading Hebrews 1. And this morning, as Brother Chris was praying, he basically prayed through my sermon, quoting Psalm 99, which is very similar to Psalm 93. But it's, it's a reminder of God working things for our good and encouraging his people. And so I'll read the entire chapter, Psalms 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established and shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now, through the knowledge of the conscience and the creation and the order of the world, the existence of God is beyond the obvious. God has given mankind abundant proof for his existence. And so to deny the existence of God is a height of foolishness, as Scripture tells us. But equally as a parent, and revealed to us in detail from Scripture is God's sovereign rule and reign. The revelation of God's rule over all things is perhaps the greatest comfort and the strongest medicine for believers who may be overwhelmed by a life full of unknowns or difficulties and uncertainties. Because when all, all that, that takes place, place in this life, life you get lost loved love love one, disappointments, disappointments the death of dreams, dreams or just the daily grind of life that we so often feel overwhelmed by. We need something that's going to last, something that's going to endure, something that's going to hold us up. It's not temporal or uncertain or wavering. As many of you know, experientially, that something is not something, it's someone. God is something. Only God is vast enough, strong enough, and faithful enough, and powerful enough. As well, as well as loving, loving and kind and gracious to children, children to, to, to take every ounce of uncertainty and anxiety and give us, us in return a heart, heart of peace. He is, he is so far above, above anything that our feeble minds can comprehend in authority and power and in majesty. And yet, with all of that, he is good and he is relational and he is kind and he is merciful. Anyone, anyone here who has experienced the transformation of God will testify to his goodness and his love. And, and I know that we know this is true, but we need to constantly remind them because, because we, we see enough, we hear enough, enough through, through sometimes just tempted to doubt unseen reality. So that's why Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, we don't look to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's what we need to have our confidence in. Things that are unseen, because that is the essence of faith. I mean, how many times do you think we drill into our heads 
reality that we must look to what is eternal, to the reality of God and his promises. And we think, what is this world? What are the things of this world compared to being an heir with Christ? And chief among these things that I'm thinking of is Recognizing the truth about him. And it's a means of God's grace to us to come together under the preaching of his word and to be instructed about who he is. Because then our hearts are drawn to him and we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And so I hope that this passage is an encouragement to the saints. Now, to rightly worship God, it should seem obvious to us that we must know him as he is revealed in Scripture, as he truly is, not as we conceive him to be or how we would like him to be, but as he is. And yet as finite beings, we can only grasp a, a fraction of his infinite being. But that is our joy, to constantly and consistently pursue a knowledge of him so that our love can grow. And that's our goal today. But before we get to the text, I just want to say three quick things about this. And one is that everything about us, and you know this, but everything about us is affected by how we view God. And so as we grow in our love for him, if we are believers, our lives are transformed as we know him. And you know what's funny? Sometimes as reformed people, we tend to take pride in having a high view of God. We are those who know God. But I would just ask us to think about a high view of God with comparison to whom? Who, who are we comparing ourselves to? to? To the shining ones who are living in his presence and see his blazing glory? Are we comparing ourselves to the demons who shrieked in terror and begged Christ not to, sh not to throw them into the pit because they knew he was the Holy One? The question really is, has your knowledge of God changed you? Have you been transformed? And so I just encourage us not to contrast ourselves with mere men and claim some kind of superior knowledge when compared to the totality of who God is. We all know so little. The second thing is this. We come to Scripture with a framework that shapes how we hear about God. So if, if we have a perspective of God that is in some way deficient, we will hear of his sovereignty and we will agree with it. We'll say, yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but it may be defined according to our own terms. For example, some of us don't like a God who could change our circumstances, but doesn't. We don't like a God who, who could do away with suffering and pain, but doesn't. We don't like a God who could save all men, but doesn't. And so we redefine 
things that we hear, and we make God according to our own liking, according to our interpretation. And the danger of that is that we reject biblical definitions and say that that could not be the God we serve because that's not how we would be. And so we're left to our own framework of defining God, and the Bible calls that idolatry. So beware of having some predetermined framework. framework. But the third and final thing is, is the doctrine of God is the highest study because life transformation always begins with the mind. We are not people who study God for the purpose of winning an argument or having some inflated ego. We want to grow in our knowledge of God so that our love for Him grows. And as we grow in our understanding, our purpose for life becomes clearer, our love for others deeper, our witness more effective, our sanctification is deepened, our faith is strengthened, our wisdom grows. Now, in this text, we are primarily focused on God's sovereign dominion over all things, and so I want to consider various aspects of God's reign. But just just to clarify, the word reign means what you probably think it means. It means to ascend the throne or to be king. And so we read this statement, the Lord reigns, and it's kind of an abrupt statement, yet it contains so much that, that it's almost more than what we can even wrap our minds around. Such greatness is there that it should fill us with wonder and worship and with confidence and yet contrition. Because while we know God is a God of untold love and mercy and grace, He is also a God to be feared. Did you hear the passage in Psalm 5 where he's, we approach God with fear? So He is not one with whom we should ever become too casual or cavalier because when we take for granted who He is or we lose our fear and all of Him, we bring Him down to us and we make Him like us. Now, I have nine points that I hope to cover quickly, so don't be scared. It'll go quickly, hopefully. But the first one I want to point out from this text is that the Lord reigns exclusively. You see it there as it begins. The Lord reigns. And the name here used is Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. This is the one true God, and He, ser- he shares His title of sovereign with no one. And just to remind you of the good news that this is, that he shares it with no one, we read that he is the only sovereign God. If you remember the text in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Now, as Christians, of course we understand this truth, but in our pluralistic society that hates exclusivity, we have to be reminded, and we cannot be afraid to proclaim the exclusive reign of Christ. There is one true God. One true God. Sometimes we need to remember this, even as Christians, to regain our equilibrium to sometimes our misunderstandings of, in our own interpretations of events. And so just a reminder to us, you and I do not reign supremely over our lives. 
We are not pawns. We are volitional creatures. We have choices. We are responsible to make good and wise decisions. But we need not manipulate or con our way through life in an attempt to make something of it. Because God presides over the lives of every person. Proverbs reminds us of this when he says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So kings do not reign. Politicians and presidents and popes and pastors do not reign. Man does not reign. The government does not reign supreme, even though it seems like they think they do sometimes. Husbands and wives and children are not supreme, even though we all have responsibility and will be held accountable. We can rest in knowing that God is ultimately in control. But furthermore, I want us to recognize that unwanted circumstances are God's providences. God is the giver of life as well as health and, and sickness and death and trials and tribulations. These all have their purposes under the reign of the king. But God presides over them all. And to go even farther, we must remember that sin and evil do not reign. We can look around and become quite discouraged by all the events of our lives or even the indwelling sin that we have, and we still fight. But we have to remember this. There is only one sovereign king, and it's not evil. It's not the devil. It's not wickedness. It's not even our own sin because God uses all things. We know that Satan and demons are all under the authority of God. Scripture says that God is over all, through all, and in all. And so we recognize that the devil and his cohorts are very real and indeed at work in, in this world. We see and feel their force, but they are not ultimately in control. And so as an application of this, I just ask you this. God's, or I just say, God's exclusive reign is meant to give his children peace and stability in their lives. And so I want us to be reminded of God's exclusive reign. But then secondly, we, uh, we want to recognize this. God reigns actively. If you look at the word, it's in an active sense. It's, it's happening. If it says in, King, in the King James Version, it says he reigneth. He's, it's a word of activity. It's reminding us that he's involved. He's not distant or sleeping as, as you remember Elijah accused Baal of doing. Oh, maybe he's sleeping. This is not a picture of God. We don't want this idea of, of, of getting a picture in our minds of a God who spun everything into orbit and then sat back and see what happens. Scripture tells us in Psalms 50 that God summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He is involved every second of every day in the creation. How much more is he involved in everything in the lives of his children? This is the foundational truth in Scripture, that God Reigns. Matthew Henry said, next to, the be- this is so next to the being of God, he said, there is nothing that we are more concerned to believe and to consider than God's dominion, that Jehovah is God and that this God reigns. Presently, he is reigning. And we know that only a fool says that there is no God. We, we are not fools. We know there is a God. But we go further and say that there is a God and he is reigning and ruling actively. We don't believe in a God who exists but is not in, current, in control currently. That's a false God, a pitiful God, a, a puny God. The God of Scripture, whom we see 
this morning is reigning over all things, even as we speak. And He is worthy of every breath you breathe. We might take some comfort in reading of a God that at creation He he orchestrated that and He reigned over it. We, We might know some comfort if we read of a God who had a purpose with His design and He He designed it and and created the world, but after it went wrong, we might even find comfort, more comfort, in reading of a God who one day will reign. But that's not what we read. We read of a God who is right now sovereignly presiding over the good and the bad, over devils and demons, over the Pope and the President, over the young and the old, over the believer and the unbeliever. Everything is under the reign of God. And so we don't want to lose sight of the passage I read earlier where he is the king over all kings, the king over all rulers today. And so just as as a reminder, I don't know what is going on in the lives of all the people sitting here, but I can tell you this. God is reigning over it, and he is active in it. He is active in it. Thirdly, the Lord reigns sovereignly. And just meaning only, this is not meant to be redundant, but just <coughs> excuse me, reminding us that there is nothing beyond his domain. There are no exception clauses, no limitations. There is nothing that qualifies this. This is the absolute, unqualified, sovereign, total reign of God. This is not meant to give any of us some kind of excuse for being anything but thankful and, and full of worship. So if God's sovereignty for any reason causes passivity or laziness, then we have a wrong view of God. But if you are his child, and you can read that God governs the universe by the word of his power, and you can read that nothing is outside of God's control, then you can lay down and sleep in peace, because you know you can trust him. But this isn't a truth to just store in our brains and be able to talk about and This is given to assist us on a very practical level on a daily basis. When you don't know how you're going to get through the day, or you don't know what the future holds in regard to your family, or your relationships, or loved ones who may not know Christ, when you feel the pressure of figuring something out that is coming down the road, or you feel like there is a fog that has shielded your view of God. See, these are the times when the Christian needs to remember and be assured of God's sovereignty over all our circumstances and decisions, and yes, even our mistakes. God reigns. Do you believe that, parents? Do you believe that God reigns over even our mistakes? Do we really believe in Romans 8.28? Do we trust that God's working all things together for the good. I mean, that's where it really matters in our daily lives. You see, there's a lot of things that I can afford not to know. I don't need, I don't need to know what tomorrow holds. I would love to. But I don't need to. Because I know one thing for sure, and it's from God's word. He works all things to the counsel of his will. And so that we know for certain so uncertainty in other things is okay if we can accept that because we're God's children. And so we can live in a, 
in a world full of chaos and evil and know that his purpose shall stand. And while I know that in, in my head, one of the greatest challenges of my life is sometimes living in practical denial of God's sovereignty. Because we see this truth, and we say that we believe it, but if we do believe it, it will change how we live. It should put a smile on the face of every believer. This should give us rest. This should cause us to trust God. It should fill our hearts with contentment. So the question I would ask is, has the truth of God's sovereignty so permeated your life that while you strive to work for Christ and to please Him, you also can accept God's providential dealings with you. Because that's, we sang the song by William Cooper, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust, trust Him in His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. See, we can trust God. We can trust Him. And these things are given for, uh, to us for the most practical of reasons to guide our lives. Fourth, the Lord reigns majestically. Look at verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Now, majesty is just a word that describes greatness. It means lifted up, exalted, or excellent. Friends, we, when we come to Scripture and we read descriptions of the one true God, we need to recognize that, yes, indeed, He is our Father, as the Bible says describes him, but he is truly majestic. He is high and lifted up and exalted beyond any of our comprehension. Psalms 104 begins like this, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like, <coughs> like a tent. So when we come to worship God, let's always bear in mind the majesty and splendor of our King. Certainly there's a sense of reverence as we come before what we would call great men. All right, We dress our best, we behave ourselves, we're slow to speak, and we're respectful, we're courteous. But the kings of the earth, no matter how powerful or how important they are, we can identify with them because we're made of the same thing. We're made from the same stock. We, we see that there are men, there are fellow men. And yet with God, he's not like us at all. He's completely different than us. His greatness and, <coughs> and his majesty are indescribable. And so when we know him, there is a sense of awe when we come into his presence. Moses in Exodus 15, he said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders. Who is like you? No one is like God. We know nothing of him. And something I've noticed if you read through, especially the Old Testament authors, they, when they attempt to describe God, they seem at such a loss. Such a loss to try to communicate to us who God is. And they use word pictures and, and different ways <coughs> to try to describe him. In Ezekiel's description of his vision of God, listen, I just want to read Ezekiel 1. 
26 to 28. Listen for how many times he uses the word likeness and appearance. Okay? So here's Ezekiel. And he says, and above the expanse over their heads, he's speaking to the shining ones, above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was a brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. God is majestic. We know nothing of his holiness and his majesty. He's indescribable. And this is an inspired author. I read that to help us see just that God is so high and so holy that even to grasp a fraction of him is glory to us. And men fall on their face when they see what they say is an appearance or a likeness of God. One man said, the glory of earthly sovereigns is as nothing in comparison with his. He is the majesty of meekness, the glory of grace, the beauty of holiness. He reigns in righteousness and love to bless and save men, yet he is, a he, is a, he is terrible to his foes. And so I just ask you this, do you behold and worship this majestic God? Because we were singing of him, behold our God. Do those words settle into your heart and it, are you drawn out in worship to him, to this indescribable God? He is majestic. But then, number five, the Lord reigns powerfully. He is robed in majesty, says the psalmist. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Now, for God to reign as supreme king over the macro and the micro, over the planets and the people and the galaxies and governments and circumstances and, and even sparrows, the Bible says, he must be a God of infinite power. And it's glorious for us to think about God being robed in majesty and wearing strength as his belt. It gives us this picture that God is so grand that to be omnipotent, even the totality of his power, is but a belt upon him. What kind of God is so powerful that even omnipotence is just a portion of him? We can only really grapple with his power like children would grapple with quantum physics. We, we don't know the fullness of it. Isaiah tells us a bit about God's grandeur in, in Isaiah 40, if you'd like to read that this afternoon. And we need reminded of his power because the entirety of... Sometimes we think like the, all of humanity and all the governments, all the world and all the strengths of the armies and the strength of evil, we, we think, oh, God, why you are powerful. Why don't you act? And we hope that God is powerful enough to restrain evil or conquer his enemies and hope that he doesn't lose ground in this cosmic tug of war. Sometimes we have views of God that, that limit his power. 
But we need to remember that God's power is unlimited. So no matter who comes against him, God shall not fail. Job says in, 40, in Job 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's infinite power. So we think, oh, yeah, but all the nations and the rulers of the world, they're setting their sights on Christianity. They're outlawing Christian things, and they're, they're bringing in all kinds of wickedness, and evil is advancing, and men are suppressed. They're suppressing the truth. Huh. Where is God? Brethren, the omnipotent, self-existent God does not care about the opposition of dying men. It doesn't matter how many they are or how powerful they are. Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. What happens when you carry a bucket with a drop of water in it? You don't know it's there, right? You don't know it's there. You literally don't. And so it is with God's power. It infinitely transcends the totality of mankind. Indeed, they would have no power were it not given to them. Someone summarized God's power like this. He said, with infinite ease, he can control, and if he sees fit, entirely quell every storm of the universe. Then let not the church fear the might of this world. High over it all, he is ruling as he pleases, the Lord omnipotent in all glory. That's what we need to be reminded of. The Lord reigns powerfully, and then sixth, the Lord reigns eternally. Verses 1 and 2. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The throne of God is a picture, the psalmist says. It's been established, and it's, it's not moving. It's, it's a picture of his reign. And we recognize that we believe by faith, as Hebrews says, that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So he created everything. It's, it's, it's from everlasting to everlasting. Psalms 90 verse 2 said, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So here again is this God who is indescribable and he's eternal. And yet we can know him. We can rest in him. And we can know that this is not temporal. As long as God exists, he's, his throne endures. His rule is secure. Yes, I know Satan is called the ruler of this world, but Satan is a creation of God. Verse 1, the end of verse 1 says, The world is established. It shall never be moved. Nothing will change the fact that God reigns. No challenge outlives God. And we know from Psalms 2 that people hate that. Wicked men hate that. They plot against God. They, they fight. They declare war against Him. But it's all in vain because so powerful is God that He laughs at their opposition. So God reigns eternally. Seventh, the Lord reigns victoriously. Look at verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Now just remember back. Remember back to Israel's history and call to mind all the times that kingdoms and empires attempted to overthrow Israel. 
right? You remember the time when the Israelites were told, don't trust your God. He never ran into a king like me. And then the king died. <laughs> like God killed his enemy. God was not intimidated or limited. And so I see this language of, of continuous opposition to God's rule and reign. And when you start thinking about what lifts up his, what lifts up its voice against God, what roars with a cry of war against him, and what his word says, what comes to mind? What, what is it that has con- constant and consistent opposition to God? It's wickedness. It's people who are in opposition. It's the enemy who are constantly crying out and saying, that's not God. That's not God. He's not in control. He must be cruel. He must not be good. He must not be wise. He cannot be. And they oppose God. People are not scared in the least to call out God and to defy him and to blaspheme his name and to defy his rule and oppose his laws. And sometimes in the midst of all the roars and the violence of the wicked cry, we forget that God reigns victoriously. So what what happens, though? What happens when enemies arise and attack him? What happens when the, the roaring of the wicked people and the nations shake their fists and deny him? What happens when all these accusations come against the Holy One of Israel? You know what happens? The same thing that happens when a leaf blows against this building. It falls to the ground and nobody ever knows it. Verse 4. Mightier! Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. We need to somehow grasp the power of God. And, and, and the language of verse 4 is, again, as though it can't be communicated. The infinite power of God, especially when it's compared to his own creation. And the threefold use of mighty is not accidental. It, it, it emphasizes how true it is. Opposing God is like a woodpecker trying to drill through a redwood. His beak's going to fall off before he makes any progress, right? I mean, man can try to stand on the train tracks and resist a train. A worm can try to resist the step of an elephant or a lion. But it's not going to happen. All in, in the same way, all the arguments against God, the attempts to destroy and disprove and nullify him, will fall away, and God will still be God. He is victorious. Don't lose sight of God's ultimate victory. Because how can you compare a mountain to a molecule? How can you compare limited ability to infinite power? It's not worth mentioning. And the psalmist here uses the imagery of the waves of the sea. Think think then. Just think of the never-ending attack of the waves upon the shoreline. Right? I mean, there's no sooner does it go into remission than the waves rise up again and come against the shoreline. But the shoreline never moves. And so all the attempts of God, uh, all the attempts of man to dispose God, his rule and his reign and his truth and his church will never succeed. Ever. You know, our Lord said, be still. storm stopped. He said to his people, he said, fear not. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is victorious. 
And God, we should, we should not be a people who are fearful because we have as our Father the all-powerful God who is threatened by no one. And so there is resistance and there always will be resistance to God's reign. But there is no threat to God and his kingdom. Next, the Lord reigns truthfully. Look at verse 5. He says, your decrees or your testimonies, depends what translation you have, your decrees are very trustworthy. I would just say this. Well, the psalmist really wants us to be convinced of this, right? He says not only are they trustworthy, they are very trustworthy. And, and I know that you can doubt every word I've said. You can argue with me and you can say that I've misread and misinterpreted and all these things. You can go to the internet this afternoon and find all kinds of opinions and, and say that you're wrong. You're wrong about God. And you're entitled to that if you wish. But one thing I can tell you from the authority of God's word and the testimonies of saints throughout two, two centuries of faithfulness is that God's decrees are very trustworthy. I'm, I'm standing here only because I'm confident, completely confident in the word of God as his true testimony. Our Lord, when he was praying to the Father, said, sanctify them in your word, in your truth. Your word is truth. One man said that truth does not change its doctrines. They are very sure. Nor holiness its precepts, which are incorruptible. The teaching and the character of God are both unaltered. You see, there's a reason that there's consistency down through the centuries with small groups of faithful people because they are the ones who cling to the inerrant, infallible, and trustworthy word of God. Truth does not change its doctrine. And you know what? Today, almost on a weekly basis, we hear people apologizing for previously held convictions. And we hear all these things that are so embraced by our world. And you know what it usually means? It means that a faithful person is now apologizing for believing God's word. I pray that as we mature in our faith, our belief in God's word is solidified there is a promise, dear friends. Believe it. If there is a description of God or man, accept it. If there is a path of obedience laid out for you, follow it. If there is sin to avoid, turn from it. If there is work to be done, then give yourself to it. Because God's word is very trustworthy. Well, I hope that we can wholeheartedly agree with this psalm, psalmist. Because if we cannot affirm that statement, we will not be prepared to stand against the attacks that are coming against the church even now. Do you count on God's word being trustworthy? And have you built your life on God-breathed absolute truth? Or are you in the sandy soil of relativism? I just sat down last week with a pastor who was talking about his former 
years gone by and some of the sins that he was dealing with and some of the mistakes he made. And another person asked him about advice that he would give to a younger person coming behind him. You know what he said? He didn't give a whole bunch of principles. He didn't excuse himself. He said, just believe the Bible. Believe the Bible. Believe what God says about sin. Believe what God says about man and the gospel. Believe it. We, as Christians, don't we all inwardly echo David's call? It says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We need to know that God's word is a place that we can turn. The Holy Scriptures are God's God-breathed, absolute truth revealed directly to us for our good. And finally, number nine. The Lord reigns in holiness. Look at verse five. He says, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The holiness of God is, is perhaps the most awesome truth for anyone to consider. Because one does not smirk at sin when we're in the presence of a God like this. Knowing God produces purity in us because when we see such glory and as we approach nearer and nearer to him, our sin becomes more and more exposed and we do everything to be rid of it because we recognize that the pure in heart receives God. And if ever there was a place where holiness should occupy every activity, it should be the local church. Holiness in our worship, holiness in our fellowship, holiness in all we do, because we are his bride, and we of all people possess the knowledge of this glorious God. We are those who are set apart unto him by his grace. So no wonder holiness befits his house. Yes, we come boldly because of the blood of Christ, but we also recognize to whom we are coming. And so we approach with reverent, all-inspired worship. Holiness befits your house. The statement fits with what the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 3. He said, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as God is pure. You see, holiness is cultivated as sanctification progresses. It's no accident that there is a holy atmosphere when God's people come together to worship. It's just a reflection of our lives. We come with a sense of awe and wonder and humility and gratitude because we recognize that only because of the blood of Christ can we approach God. I mean, isn't it a joy to gather with the saints? Do you not enjoy gathering together. We don't simply come to a building like Mark was saying. We, this is an obligation. We don't just come here because it's Sunday. We come in his name. We come wearing his garments of righteousness, using his gifts that he's given us while we magnify his name. The gathering of the saints is the highlight of the week for every believer. At least it should be. Because how can we be anything but holy when we receive such grace? 
And I know we fall and we sin and we, we have so many things throughout the course of our lives. But we hate. We hate when we sin. We hate irreverence. We cringe when we fall. And we come back to God because of His grace. And so we worship Him. Not lightly or flippantly, but in holiness. John Owen, in speaking of worshiping the Lord, said, What soul that has any acquaintance with these things does not fall down with reverence and astonishment. How glorious it is that He is the beloved of our souls. That's the attitude we come with. We know that the knowledge of God has a profound effect upon His people in the most practical sense. Because sin is serious to those who know God. And so holiness is fitting to those who know Him best. Psalm 97.10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Hate evil. And we understand that the church is only unholy if it has a small or faulty view of God. That's why holiness is a beautiful adornment of the church. We don't live in the presence of God with ambivalence towards sin. And we see it. When we see the glory of God, it has an effect upon us. And so I hope that you recognize that knowing God is not just for the ivory tower theologians who write books for us. It's for all of us to know Him, to worship Him in holiness. Now, I just want to close with a couple questions as far as application. The one question is this. Are we proclaiming this truth? Are we proclaiming the lordship and sovereignty of Christ? Because it's one of the most offensive things that we can say today. But it's the most needed message. We must tell people of their accountability to him and of his provision of Jesus Christ as the only way to be right with God. But then secondly, I would ask, has the knowledge of God produced joy in your life? I, th this verse in Isaiah 12, it says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see, the presence of God produces joy because in His presence is the fullness of joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if we spent more time looking at him, we would soon forget our own petty trials. <laughs> That's true. Third, I, I want to ask this. Is God the greatest reality in your life? Is his sovereignty, his, <coughs> his activity, his power, his holiness, and his truthfulness more than just some abstract truth to us? I ask because Christianity is more than just mental assent and hearing the truth. It is spirit-empowered, grace-given ability to live in constant awareness of God's presence. David said in Psalm 16, he said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. One of the things that I pray is that the reality of God would be foremost in our minds on a daily basis. The reality of who God is. Finally, I just want to ask you if you know that you are the son or daughter of Almighty God. Because I hope we recognize from this chapter that 
No one makes Jesus Lord of his life. He is Lord. He is Lord over all. But perhaps someone realizes this morning that you have not come in faith and repentance. And I would just say to you, God is so gracious. God in his righteousness and in his holiness is altogether different than us. And yet, his mercy, in his mercy, he has sent his son. As, as we heard this morning, Christ is this substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're told that Christ died for the purpose of bringing us to God. Scripture says to everyone, come, everyone who thirsts, come. And so I want you to know that a way of salvation has been made, and all we must do is come, cry out to the Lord. Paul puts it this way, as it was read again this morning, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And so to the saints, my singular message to you this morning is just to say this, magnify the Lord together. Let us exalt his name together. That's what the psalmist said, and that is what I pray, because I don't know what you're facing in life. I don't know the difficult things that you're dealing with, but I want to give you a rock on which you can plant your feet. God himself, because his ways are good, he is kind, he is powerful, his word is sure, his power cannot be exhausted, his glory is beyond imagination. And so I pray that we can anchor ourselves to this God through faith in Christ and enjoy security and hope and rest for our souls. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, again, we pray that you would use this simple attempt to communicate truth about you, to open our eyes to greater insights, to deepen our faith and strengthen our courage. And we pray, God, that your people would be helped by the hearing of your word today. We thank you for who you are, Lord. You are altogether different, for you are glorious, for you are great. What is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, we thank you all the more for Christ, who came in our place and made a way of salvation. And in him, we have confidence. So we thank you and we worship you in Christ's name.